Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, we're going to talk about the untold inside story of how progressive ideologues and democratic politicians abandoned the American tradition of strength, pride, and honor. I'm joined by New York Times best-selling author, and United States Senator from Arkansas, Tom Cotton. In his new book, Only the Strong, Reversing the Left's Plot to Sabotage American Power, he exposes the left's decades-long plot to sabotage American power and provides a behind-the-scenes look at the dangerous failures of Presidents Barack Obama and Joe Biden and explains what we must do to recover America's strength. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Senator Tom Cotton, Representing the great state of Arkansas, he is the best-selling author of Sacred Duty. He served in Iraq with the 101st Airborne Division and in Afghanistan with the Provincial Reconstruction Team. Between combat tours, he served with the 3rd Infantry Regiment, the Old Guard, at Arlington National Cemetery. His military decorations include the Bronze Star, the Combat Infantryman Badge, and the Ranger Tab. He serves on the Senate Intelligence, Armed Services, and Judiciary Committees, and I can tell you, having been with him many times, he is very, very smart, very energetic, and has a lot of courage. Tom, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Thank you, Newt, very much. It's great to be on with you, and appreciate the kind introduction. Let's start with your credentials, because your military career was an impressive prelude to your public service on the elected side. What happened and how did you end up in the military? 
Well, I had an unusual path into the military, Newt. I'd gone to college and I was in law school. I just started my third year of law school when the 9-11 attacks happened. And that made me want to serve. I wanted to rush out and join right away, as I described in Sacred Duty. But some of my friends who were in the Army or had served recommended I finish my education and try to repay my loans. So I did that. And a couple of years later, I enlisted. And it was really no different from what you know our forefathers had done You know, when they rushed out, for instance, to join the Army after we were attacked at Pearl Harbor. Our country had been attacked on 9-11, and I wanted to serve and to do my part. You went to both Ranger and Airborne schools. That must have been a pretty intense experience. You could say that again, Newt. Yeah, my year at Fort Benning, I wouldn't exactly call it fun, but I certainly had a memorable time, and the Army trained me very well for what lay ahead of me in Iraq and Afghanistan. As one of my Ranger School instructors said, we want to prepare you so that when you're in Iraq next year, you wake up from a nightmare thinking you were back in ranger school and happy that, to discover you were only in Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> so from your own experience, how do you think serving in the military changed you? Well, it certainly taught me a lot of lessons about leadership, about dedication to the mission, about putting others before yourself. Those are reinforced lessons I'd learned from my own folks. You know, my dad had been an infantryman himself in Vietnam. And we also learned some lessons from the front lines that are very applicable when it comes to grand strategy and my work in the Congress. In 2006, it was obvious to me, as it had been for a while in Iraq, that we didn't have enough troops on the ground to achieve our objectives and that security always has to come first. That's still the case today, of course, in the international relations. It's also the case in our own communities. You know, you can't have economic growth you can't have good education. You can't have thriving communities without safe streets. Now, in addition to your combat experience, which was significant, you ended up at the Old Guard, which is a remarkable institution in Washington, which protects Arlington Cemetery, but also does almost all of the major activities in Washington that require honorary guards. It's a volunteer unit, and yet you hadn't volunteered. So I gather that the Army volunteered you. Yeah, as we said in the Army, I was voluntold that I was going to go to the Old Guard at Arlington. I was in my final weeks in Iraq when I got orders directing me to Arlington, saying my application had been accepted. And as I write, you know, I went up to the call trailer and called the personnel officer, and he explained that they had selected me and six others to come join. So at first, I thought it must have been because of my superior performance as a new lieutenant. Only later did I learn that he only chose me and the others because we were the tallest eligible infantry officers available at the second lieutenant rank, since I'm six foot five. So it was your superior performance at being tall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what was that like? I mean, that's hallowed ground and a remarkable place in terms of connecting you to the heart of American history. What was your feeling as you served there? It truly is hallowed ground. You know, it goes back not just to Robert E. Lee and the Civil War when the Union Army used it as an encampment after the Lee family fled. But of course, Robert E. Lee was married to the daughter of a man who was George and Martha Washington's grandson. So it goes all the way back to Washington. It seems almost predestined by Providence to become our national cemetery. And it was a great honor to be able to lay to rest and to honor and to commemorate our heroes in Arlington on its sacred ground. You know, if I couldn't be leading troops downrange in combat in Iraq or Afghanistan, I think there's no other job I would have preferred doing in the Army. You served both in Iraq and in Afghanistan. How would you compare the two experiences? 
they were very different experiences. Partly it was due to the different nature of my units and my missions, but partly different from the country as well. Iraq for decades had lived in tyranny, one funded by petrodollars, whereas Afghanistan had lived in anarchy for decades. So just a very different kind of impact it has on the peoples. You know, in Afghanistan, people were always used to fending for themselves, providing for themselves, relying only on themselves and their families, their clans and tribes. Whereas Iraq, because of the totalitarian nature of their petro dictatorship, you know, the Iraqi people were used to having things provided for them. It was just a very different perspective on the way failures of government at one extreme or the other can influence a society. When you came back from Afghanistan, you ultimately left the army. What led you to decide to run for the House? Well, I got out of the Army in 2009. I spent a couple years in business. I was thinking at the time in 2011 about starting my own business or making a move to a business where I could once again you know, be in charge of leading people. I had a few opportunities there. But as luck would have it, and that's often the case in politics, just a matter of fortune and timing, in the redistricting in Arkansas, the Democrats, who then still were in charge of the legislature, moved my home into the last Democratic-held district after we had just had a big victory in Arkansas in 2010, like we'd had all across the country. So I was very worried with the direction that Barack Obama and Joe Biden were taking the country then. I thought that you know I could spend a year on the campaign trail, and if I won, I'd have a chance to make a difference and serve my country once again. And if I lost, you know, the worst thing that would have happened is I'd spent a year meeting a great, bunch of great Arkansans, and who knew what kind of opportunity I'd have. And of course, you ended up winning. And then shortly after that, you ended up running for the Senate. I did. I love my time in the House. I still got great friends in the House of Representatives. But one thing I saw, as you probably saw oftentimes in your time in the House, that we had a Republican House, but the problem was with the Senate under Democratic control of Harry Reid. And Senator McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, had reached out to me early after my election to the House, encouraged me to consider thinking about the run for the Senate. And a lot of my supporters across the state did as well. And again, just kind of as things shook out, it became clear that I would be the front runner for the Republican nominee. And in fact, it ended up not even having an opponent. Things would have been very different. You know, five years later, as Arkansas became a more Republican state, there might have been 10 people in that primary to run. You know, five years earlier, it might not have been possible to win as a Republican. There are moments in your life when if you, as Shakespeare wrote on Caesar, that there are tides which taken at the crest lead on to victory and omitted never recur. You were there at the moment for the tide. (laughs) I was, and I'm grateful to the people of Arkansas for the opportunity to have joined the tide and ride it along all these years, serving them and the people, serving them first in the House and then in the Senate. You were elected to the House as a bachelor, but you got to the Senate as a family man. Tell us about Anna for a minute. Yeah, 2014 was quite the amazing year. We got married, we got pregnant, we got elected. My wife, who definitely makes me look like the milquetoast moderate, of the family is a wonderful girl, grew up in farm country in Nebraska. She had started out as an actress out in Hollywood, but shifted gears and became a lawyer and worked out in the Rocky Mountain West, first in Montana and then in Wyoming as a U.S. attorney and then in private practice. And then she was hired by the CIA. So she was in Washington working at the CIA when I met her in 2013, shortly after my election to the House. We fell in love promptly, or at least I did, since the first time I declared my love for her, all she said was thank you. And she came around and, like I said, got married in 2014 and had our first son, Gabriel, shortly after the election and our next son about 18 months later. So you're sort of a national security family. I mean, 
with her CIA background and your army background. You could say that. She takes these matters very seriously as well. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You got directly involved in the disaster that Biden created in Afghanistan and the way he withdrew. And you were actively trying to help people get away from the Taliban. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's a remarkable personal involvement. Yeah, you know, last year I saw firsthand on the armed services and intelligence committees the deterioration of conditions in Afghanistan. I'd always believed that the kind of precipitous and hasty withdrawal that Biden directed was likely to harm our interests. The rapid deterioration, I think, surprised even members of our military and the intelligence community. And certainly when Joe Biden said in early July that you'd see nothing like we saw in Saigon as helicopters lifted off the embassy rooftop in 1975, I didn't know what he was saying. But even I didn't appreciate the full scale of the fiasco. You know, the State Department is responsible for evacuating noncombatants. The military and our intelligence agencies had done a pretty good job of getting their own people out in an orderly fashion, but the State Department had completely dropped the ball on getting all other Americans out of Afghanistan. So just a few hours after Kabul fell, I got a call from my father as I explained and only the strong, and there was someone just down the road in Yale County, Arkansas, who was stuck behind Taliban lines. I just couldn't believe it. And if someone from rural Arkansas was there, I can only imagine how many people were. And as we now know, there were probably tens of thousands of people that needed to be evacuated that were not. As it happens, we were Kabul collapsed in August. And as you know, August is a slow time in the Congress because 
I was home and all the other members of Congress are home. So I was able to ask my staff to work full time setting up an emergency hotline. So our fellow Americans trapped in Afghanistan could have at least a human being to reach as opposed to an automated system at the State Department. We were also fortunate that one of my young aides was a reservist and she was mobilized at the time. And she was actually present at the Kabul airport to provide us the latest information there about what gates were the safest and also to even kind of meet up and walk in some of the Americans that we directed to the airport. It's a sad commentary on Joe Biden's failures that it took a Senate office like mine or other Senate offices or a lot of very generous nonprofit groups and philanthropists and veterans all working together to get out so many Americans who should have been evacuated well before the fall of Kabul. You wrote in your book that, I'm quoting you, Joe Biden's Afghanistan fiasco will live in infamy as a strategic blunder of the first order. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, it's very similar to what happened in Vietnam in 1975 when Democrats, like a young Joe Biden in the Senate, voted to cut off support for the South Vietnamese government. It's not just a humiliation in the moment. It's a signal to our adversaries around the world that America lacks the strength and resolve to protect our interests and stand by our friends. And after the collapse of Saigon in 1975, you saw Soviet communism on the march all around the globe, whether it was in Latin America or Africa, the invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. And I'm afraid that we're going to be living with a similar Afghan effect as we lived with the Vietnam syndrome for at least as long as Joe Biden is president. So, for instance, it's not a coincidence, as I say in Only the Strong, that Vladimir Putin began to marshal forces on Ukraine's border just a few weeks after the collapse of Afghanistan. In addition to Joe Biden's many concessions to Vladimir Putin throughout the early days of his presidency, our hasty collapse in Afghanistan enticed or tempted Vladimir Putin to do what he had always wanted to do, which was go for the jugular in Ukraine. It seems to me that part of what you capture in your book is the degree to which people like Biden just literally don't understand the world. I like your phrase. You call him Biden a dove, a hawk, and an ostrich. I think ostrich may actually be a pretty good explanation of a lot of the left's foreign policy. But walk us through the dove, hawk, ostrich model. Sure. So as I explained in Only the Strong, that, you know, the progressive temperament going back to Woodrow Wilson kind of results in two different postures towards the world. One is what you might call liberal internationalism. You saw this in World War I when Woodrow Wilson took us to war, not in his words for any vital interest, not to avenge the deaths of Americans on the Lusitania, not to defend our border since Germany was conspiring with Mexico to seize American territory not to protect shipping as Germany started unrestricted submarine warfare, but rather to go to war on behalf of abstract ideals, much like, say, Madeleine Albright and others wanted to put boots on the ground in the Balkan Wars in the 1990s, as did Joe Biden, much like Bill Clinton's misadventure in Mogadishu in 1993 or Barack Obama's decision to overthrow the Libyan government in 2011. That's the hawkish side of the progressive mindset. The dovish side is the blame America first mindset you see in the Vietnam War era and coming forward to today with people like the squad and the 1619 Project. They believe that America can't redeem ourselves if we you know, will try to improve the social and moral and political conditions of other peoples and defend abstract ideals with forces necessary, but rather that America is so flawed, so sinful, 
that there's nothing that we can do to redeem ourselves. All we need to do is atone for our sins and pull in our horns. And Biden has, has reflected both of those temperaments. You know, as he came into Congress as a kind of typical blame America first Democrat between the first Gulf War and the second war with Iraq, he became this kind of avenging liberal hawk, wanting to put troops, as I said, into the Balkan Wars, condemning Clinton and Europe for not doing so, regretting that we didn't already overthrow Saddam Hussein. Of course, he then flip-flopped after the Iraq War as he was preparing to run for president, and he's returned to his dovish roots. But there's also this ostrich tendency, especially as it relates to Russia and China, where Joe Biden just seems habitually incapable of acknowledging that these are aggressive nationalist dictators who want to undermine America. You know, he denied for much of the Cold War that we actually were in a Cold War. If he did, he said it was Ronald Reagan's fault. Just like still today, he keeps denying that we seek a Cold War. Well, I don't seek a Cold War either. We didn't seek one in the Cold War itself. But if China is waging one against us, we don't have much choice other than to win it or to lose it. I tell audiences regularly that the challenge of liberalism is they saw The Lion King and they thought it was a documentary and they actually believe the lions and zebras sing and dance together. And we try to convince them that actually lions eat zebras and they go, no, no, didn't you see the movie? Don't you realize? So whether it's Putin or Xi Jinping or Kim Jong-un in North Korea or the mullahs in Iran, they somehow always try to reinterpret them as though they were Disney characters and somehow they can be friends. And I think it's kind of scary. It is. As I say, and only the strong, you know, one day the meek will inherit the earth. But until then, the strong will have to guard it. And one day the lion may lie down with the lamb. But even when that happens, I would still rather be the lion than the lamb. It's not just that they're weak. They actually have been actively undermining and sabotaging American power. And you make that case as well as anybody I've seen. Can you just walk us through how you came to that and the examples you can give of the way in which the left has literally been undermining American power in the world. Sure. And I think the reason why Democrats like Joe Biden simply can't stand up strongly for America's interests is that they are at best ambivalent about America. And many on the left are openly hostile to America, you know, the squad and the 1619 crowd, for instance. But if you're ambivalent about America, then you're going to be, you know, naturally hostile and averse to the source of and the exercise of American power, whether it's our military or a strong, prosperous economy, sovereign borders and freedom of action in the world and American energy production and so forth. I trace this story back to Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was a professor before he was the president. He is the patron saint of the modern progressive movement the first politician to openly repudiate the Declaration and the Constitution, saying that they were obsolete, they were outmoded, they didn't understand you know, the lights of modern science, and we had now understood how to master nature, to include human nature, which could become perfectible, and therefore we could achieve utopia. We could return to the garden this side of Earth. This is all influenced by German romantic philosophy. And you see that in the world as when progressivism meets the world with World War One, as we were discussing earlier about this idea that it would be selfish or grimy or ignoble to use American power to defend America's interests. It's more enlightened to use it to improve the political and social and economic conditions of other people or to defend some kind of abstract ideals, you know, best embodied by the Treaty of Versailles and the League of Nations. But once you repudiate America's founding, the moral basis of our nation as outlined in our Declaration and our Constitution, 
then it's a pretty short step to repudiating America itself. And that's what the new left did in the Vietnam era, when you had thousands of liberals burning their draft cards, evading the draft, not just protesting the war, but you know, firebombing police stations in the United States Capitol. And you still see those tendencies today, as we discussed earlier as well. Liberals who think that America can somehow redeem ourselves of our sins if we'll only exercise our power on behalf of anyone but Americans, or that America is so sinful and so fallen that all we really need to do is to atone for our sins and apologize. Now, you get someone like Barack Obama, who's the most progressive president since Woodrow Wilson, and he's a shrewd politician, though. He's not going to say that openly in the way Wilson did, but sometimes the mask slips. I mean, this is a man, remember, that didn't just happen to sit in the pews of Jeremiah Wright's church. I mean, he sought out Jeremiah Wright as his pastor, sat in his church for years, had Jeremiah Wright officiate his wedding to Michelle Obama. Remember, Jeremiah Wright's the pastor who said God didn't bless America, but damned America, that 9-11 was America's chickens coming home to roost. That's a very blame America first viewpoint. Or you know, Barack Obama once notoriously said that he believed in American exceptionalism in the same way that Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism, which is to say it's really kind of outmoded, embarrassing chauvinism for one's own. We should all just get over and transcend and become one global community, a citizen of the world, as he said in his Berlin speech, and kind of submit ourselves to a globalist government of professors and lawyers and journalists. All these things bespeak a lack of confidence in America, hesitations and doubts about the exercise of American power in defense of our interests and in the defense of a free world order. I think this is sort of central. One of the things that Trump was getting at in his whole effort to explain America first and his speech in Warsaw and at the U.N., that if you're not a country and if you don't believe in your own country, you're not in a position to be very effective in the world. Yeah, I mean, we have to have a strong country and a sovereign nation, and it's better for America when we have strong allies as well. That was part of President Trump's point in his Warsaw speech. And it's also good for us. You know, as I write in Only the Strong, President Reagan esteemed the solidarity movement in Poland. He esteemed the freedom fighters in Nicaragua. He supported them as much as he could. He did that in part because he wanted them to live in freedom. He did that, though, mostly because it was good for America's struggle against Soviet communism. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about all that, the process of undermining America and of not believing in America, I think probably shows itself as vividly in their unwillingness to control the border as any policy they have. And you write very strongly about this, and I think you legitimately feel very strongly, but can you understand why they want a totally open border with fentanyl and drug cartels and human trafficking and all the different things that that implies? Borders are one of the most inherent properties of any nation, and you can't have a country if you don't have borders. And because Democrats are so doubtful about America, because they want to undermine American sovereignty so badly, as I write in Only the Strong, they are incapable of protecting our borders. If the consequence of that open border policy is 5 million illegal aliens, plus our streets flooded with fentanyl and MS-13 gang members, well, that's unfortunately just a small price to pay for our move towards a more enlightened, post-national, globalist order. They just view that as the eggs you have to break to get to the omelet of the globalist world order they pursue. To compound all this, as they are undermining our ability to function effectively, you point out correctly in your book, that the rise of China is an enormous challenge to our ability to survive as a free country and that the Chinese are really good at the kind of infiltration and manipulation that we're not particularly good at stopping. Yeah, I conclude only the strong by saying it's really a choice that we face. Do we want to continue to live as a safe, free, prosperous nation in a world order that's dominated by America or do we want to submit to China? Now, maybe China won't conquer America directly and impose a kind of techno-totalitarian dystopia where we renounce God and give up our free government, but maybe they will. But even short of that, China may be in a position of such strategic advantage worldwide that they call the shots. They get to run the show and we have to dance to their tune. Most Americans don't want to live in such a world But for 30 years, our policy has enabled China's rise to the point that this is the most dangerous adversary we've ever faced. We've never faced a country with an economy as large as ours, with a military that is our peers. We certainly didn't have the same kind of economic entanglement with Soviet Russia 
that we do with Chinese communists. And as you say, they are extremely effective in insinuating their influence into America's public debates. You see it everywhere. Look at what happened when the Houston Rockets general manager merely retweeted a show of support for Hong Kong protesters. Fellow NBA executives and LeBron James came down on him like a ton of bricks. Why? Because the NBA's biggest market is in China. LeBron James, like everyone involved in Hollywood, won't say anything bad about China because they want access to Chinese movie studios. Wall Street and corporate firms want access to the Chinese markets and have factories in China. It comes from strange places as well, too. Not many people would expect governors and state legislators and county officials, or for that matter, universities, to be, in effect, lobbying for Chinese interests. But they often are because those state officials and county officials are courting Chinese investments in their states and communities. And university officials are often relying on full freight tuition paying Chinese nationals. So in Only the Strong, I try to expose what I call the China lobby so Americans will be on guard for that kind of pervasive Chinese communist influence in our public debates. It's kind of remarkable how much the Chinese have penetrated our system and how many billionaires are prepared to basically sell out America for the next big paycheck. And the pressures against us doing the right kind of things when faced with that kind of a competitor. But in addition to the kind of psychological and diplomatic approaches, there's also the objective reality of the Chinese military buildup. And you point out strongly in your book that we have to have the kind of military power that will convince the Chinese not to take us on. And of course, you're serving on two of the committees, Intelligence and Armed Services, that gives you an intimate knowledge of that. How seriously are you worried that we have just steadily downgraded our military capability? I am very worried because Democrats like Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton have consistently cut our defense budget. It's almost like birds migrating south for the winter. Every time a Democrat takes the White House, they start cutting defense. I mean, you remember from your time in Congress with Bill Clinton as president, how badly he cut the defense budget down to the bone. It got to its lowest level since before World War II. So we've had some small increases thanks to Republican insistence in Congress in the last couple of years over what Joe Biden proposed. But even those are largely eaten up by inflation. We need substantial growth in our defense budget year over year. And we need to be investing in the kinds of weapons that are going to help us prevent a war with China in the Western Pacific and win a war if it comes to that. Some of those are relatively low-tech munitions. You know, we need many more missiles than we have now. We need to produce them at a much higher rate. We need to have them stored in effective and deterrable ways in the Western Pacific. We need to supply them to Taiwan. We need more undersea warfare, specifically attack submarines, more ability to interfere with China's satellite communications and protect our own, given the distances in the Pacific Ocean. These are all things that we need to substantially increase our investment in if we want to maintain the balance of power favorable to the United States. Are you comfortable that even if we give them the money, that the current Pentagon is capable of spending it effectively? The current Pentagon, I have concerns about, Newt. A future Pentagon, though, I think can. I mean, Bob Gates showed in his time both under George Bush and Barack Obama, the ability of a strong secretary to wring savings out of the Pentagon bureaucracy. You have to be willing 
to break a little China, but that's what Bob Gates did. Unfortunately, under Barack Obama, he was double-crossed, and that money was not reinvested into weapons for the future, but rather taken for other kinds of domestic spending, which again is a priority you see with Democratic presidents, as I say, and only the strong. They always prioritize their domestic objectives over the most fundamental object of the government, which is to keep America safe with a strong military. But no, I think with a strong president and a strong secretary of defense who are clear-eyed about the way we need to expand our military, you can get what we had in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan and Cap Weinberger. The other thing you talk about in your book, which is, I think, really important, and of course, one of the big factors in the election this year, is the whole issue of energy security and getting back to national energy independence. I mean, it's been amazing to me to watch an administration do almost every single thing wrong. I mean, it's almost like they had a checklist of, can we screw this up? Don't you think actually with the right policies, we would get back to American energy independence with remarkable speed? There's no question about it, Newt. Probably energy independence is the single clearest issue where you see the Democrats' efforts to sabotage American power. It's not bad luck. It's not misfortune that we have 4 or $5 a gallon of gas right now. It is the intended consequence of the Democratic Party. You know, Joe Biden and all those other Democrats on the campaign trail in 2020 promised that they would eliminate fossil fuel production in America. If you recall, in the 2008 campaign, Barack Obama said that he was going to bankrupt coal miners and he was going to necessarily increase the price of your electricity bills because of his energy plans. The Democrats have an ideological campaign against American fossil fuel production, which is terrible for American families and businesses because of the cost it imposes on them. It's bad for our allies and partners around the world who would be better off getting energy from America rather than from countries like Russia. And it's bad for the environment because we have the best, most environmental friendly ways to produce oil and gas and coal in this country, much more so than places like Venezuela and Iran. But it, again, gets back to the Democrats' intentional sabotage of this critical source of American power. I mean, it literally powers our economy. It's astonishing. Tom, I want to thank you for joining me. Your new book, Only the Strong, Reversing the Left's Plot to Sabotage American Power, provides a formidable and urgent roadmap to restore American strength. And we're going to link to it on our show page and encourage all of our listeners to get a copy. I think you're really doing important patriotic work in the Senate. Your leadership really matters. I want to thank you for joining me on Newt's World and sharing your ideas and your insights with us. Well, Newt, thank you so much for having me on, and thanks for your many years of service to America and the way you promote the battle for conservative ideas. Thank you to my guest, Senator Tom Cotton. You can get a link to buy his new book, Only the Strong, Reversing the Left's Plot to Sabotage American Power, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. 
I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.